The Bible passage for this morning is Nehemiah chapter 3, uh, which you can find on page 682 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hanasseh. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Then moving on to verse 8. Aziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumah, made repairs opposite his house. And Hanush, son of Hapentesh, Hap I did practice this. <laughs> son of Hashabaniah made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pathoth Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. I just looked through the chapter and tried to find the hardest names and pick those verses for the reading. All right. What kind of sermon do you expect from that scripture reading, I wonder? I'm just going to make one up. How about that? Okay. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot is that Jesus demands faith from people, which doesn't mean just believing in fairy tales. It means having the courage to put your shoulder to things that are not— um, something that you can put in your mouth. Believing in something bigger than that, higher than that, sometimes more immaterial than that, but in some ways more real than anything you can touch or feel, including God and everything that God stands for, and believing that with enough courage to act. Okay, now, the question is, is that once you believe that God demands faith for salvation, then what do you, then what do you do? What is that faith for? Right? You can be like, well, it's, it's for being saved. And that's a beautiful little circular logic tautology. It's true. You want to be saved. Faith saves. What do you do with faith? You're saved by it. Then what, what happens with the salvation? You have to have faith. And it just, but that's not really the point, right? Salvation is for something. What's it for? Faith is for something. What is faith for, right? And I think what we're going to see in Nehemiah, and I think you can build this argument from the whole of the Bible, there's at least two things. One is you can attempt great goods. You should have the courage to do things in the present world and life that you live in that you know are good because of the thing you have faith in and because of the courage it gives you, right? But the second, which in some ways is before that one, before you try to attempt great goods, it's the thing you have to do before that, which is that 
you seek to acquire great virtue. That is, you attempt to do a great good inside yourself with God's help, through faith. What's the faith for? The faith is to pursue God. What does that mean? You can't actually chase an incorporeal spirit, okay? So what does pursue God mean? To pursue God means to seek to grow in your character so that while still being yourself, you are more like him in his character. Does that make sense? So that you are the most Christ-like or godly version of yourself, true to your humanity and temperament, but true to his righteousness and truthfulness and holiness. Does that make sense? Now, um, one of the family of virtues that must be pursued, that might be the most unpopular, is one that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. In a section called the Beatitudes, which is the ways to be blessed, essentially, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's, it's, it's soundly um, America's least favorite beatitude. Right? For, for a couple of reasons. What does meek actually mean? Right? Like on, on one level, sometimes when we think of meek, we just think of the poor, the dispossessed, those who are of low station. And in one sense, meek does mean that. Right? Meekness is in some ways a, a lack of haughtiness, a lack of believing in your own self-importance in terms of the modesty of your manner. So in one sense, meekness is most likely the behavior of the poor because the poor aren't considered important. They're not given power. They're not in a position to be haughty about their station. And so they tend to be realistic about it and they tend to be meek, right? But everybody hates that because if what that means, that either means this, either the people who don't have anything are going to get everything, so there's no sense in trying to get anything, right? It's the worship of poverty, which is not a particularly Christian doctrine. The, the aid of the poor is a Christian doctrine, but the, the love of poverty is not, or the deification of poverty isn't. Or it means something like this, being unassertive, which Americans fear even more than poverty, right? Which is like that you would have to back down or like not be pushy. Right, I've, I've traveled a number of places in the world now, and man, that stereotype is really kind of true of us. Like when you see pushy people abroad, man, the correlation between that and being an American, and, and then they'll say, it's so funny because they'll be like, I don't mean to be pushy. Like, they, like we've learned over the last 20 years not to not be pushy abroad. We've actually learned just to acknowledge we're being pushy by saying, I don't mean to be pushy, right? But the kind of pushy that Americans do is kind of this loud vocal pushiness. So like I've been in India, for example, and I'm, I'm ready to like get up to the ticket counter when a flight changes to be like, demand my rights, you know, like as an American. Meanwhile, everybody else from the other cultures, they just all like kind of passively just like push in front of you. And like get, they just, everybody gets in front of you because that's how you have to drive in India, right? You got to just get in there wherever you can. You can't be meek, Right? If you, if you go to the scriptures and you say, okay, let's actually study through the scriptures this concept of meekness. What does it actually mean? So that we can recognize what it would mean to pursue it, because that's what faith is for, right? Now, if you just look at the lexicographical, um, the definition, like what did, what did the lexicon say? Like, like what, what does this word mean in its context? Well, it means lowly. We just went over that. Gentle, humble, considerate, kind, mild, friendly disposition, or the older sense, older sense meaning in English, the older English definition of meekness, meaning strong but accommodating. So a meek person in older British English would have meant somebody who's a strong person, but, but naturally has deference to other people and wants to accommodate them. 
but isn't a pushover, right? Now, one of them might be enough because that's not a bad person. It's a pretty good person. You might not like lowly, but most of that stuff's pretty good stuff, and we could use a little bit more of that, right? But if you push it a little further, if you, if you look at the characters in the Bible that are, that are, we're told that they have profound meekness. The two of which that word is used most profoundly is one in the book of Numbers. It says that Moses was the most meek is the technical word used there. Meek man on the face of the earth. Now, which is kind of funny because Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth, faces down the greatest empire of his time, faces down the greatest king of his time, faces battles, is chased by armies, divides oceans, <laughs> um, yells at people, <laughs> is like, gets in all kinds of conflicts, constantly, right? And yet, he he's called the meekest man on earth. Now, arguably, Moses wrote the, the Torah, <laughs> right? But, right, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and there were lots of editors later that could have changed that if they felt like it was appropriate. You know, and they did it. They left it. Because that's really not what meek means, to be silent or weak or deferential when you shouldn't be. Does that make sense? One of the great difficulties of virtue is that you almost never do the same thing all the time. The difficulty of virtue is always in its application, right? If, if it's virtuous to be deferential, the big question is when? When should you be deferential? And when shouldn't you be? Right? That's why love is so hard. Okay, love is to act in the true, true good of another person. Well, what's in their true good right now? Could be anything. You have to know what it is. Does that make sense? And then Jesus, one of the reasons why it's prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus enters Jerusalem that he's going to ride on a donkey, not some great war horse, but some like little, little, like piddly little donkey, is to demonstrate that as he rides in his king, as the Messiah, as the great ruler, as the son of God, he rides in meekly still. Because in all of his ministry, even at his, even when there was fire burning in his eyes, he still was never not meek. Okay? Now listen. For many of us, this is an area of like an incredible moral blind spot in our lives and in our godliness, and in our pursuit of God. Um, Satan and our flesh and our culture has so redefined and undefined and badly defined this family of virtues that it's drawn our heart back away from it instead of recognizing that it's one of the great pursuits of our life if we're pursuing Jesus. In the scriptures, when you actually compare in context, what the scriptures say meekness is, and on one level, there are a couple passages, not very many, and arguably not even this one, that, that where meekness is used, that word, that it refers to poverty or lowliness of position. So in this case, David says, um, I have committed my way to the Lord. Let the lowly or the meek be glad. What does that mean? Well, when the king is going to submit to the Lord, he's not going to misuse or abuse everybody. And who's going to benefit from that? The poor, because they're the easiest to abuse, so they can be glad, right? So arguably the best definition here is, is that that refers to people who are in poverty or, lo or lowly in terms of their social position. But as you move through the Bible, for example, in 1 Peter, Peter's talking actually to women in that context about modesty, and he says, he says, listen, don't be the kind of woman who dresses it up 
and then is loud and like tries to take over the room and push everybody else to the margins and be the center of everything. He says, instead, in meekness of spirit and godliness, adorn yourself that way. Right? What is the essence of, what's the essence of, of, um, what's what I'm looking for here? Modesty. Modesty is not just not showing your biceps or cleavage. Modesty is recognizing that you should not promote yourself above others in any other way than a virtuous way. So in the Bible, in the Bible, the only way to rise in your prominence in the body of Christ is by becoming more godly, more loving, more meek, more honest, more, more broadly good. And then respect ought to be afforded you for that pursuit and that development. And you, people would listen to you and honor the wisdom that God puts in you. And so there is a way in which your status rises in a good way. And in the body of Christ, that's really the only way. And anything else is immodesty or a failure of the virtue of meekness, right? Modesty is, meekness is a, is a, is a family of virtues, and modesty is one of the virtues in the family of virtues that make up meekness. Does that make sense? In Zephaniah 3, that's the one about um, Jesus entering on the foal, where he's coming in on a donkey, and he's lowly in spirit and meek. It's, it literally says in that prophecy that he's coming in to demonstrate that your king comes to you meekly. Right? And then this last one in Psalm 37, meekness is contrasted with unrighteousness. Like, the, the, the idea is that there are the wicked and there are the meek. I'm going to take you through this just quickly. So the red is the evil men, and the blue is what those who follow God who have faith are commanded to pursue, okay? So this is a Psalm of David. He says, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither, and like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land. Land and earth are the same word in Hebrew. And enjoy great peace. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows that their day is coming. So one of the ways to interpret blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, is to say, well, that's probably the poor, and then they're going to get the earth in the end rather than people who claim to own it now. That's one way. Another way to interpret the Bible is to say, is this a quote from somewhere? You see, that beatitude is literally a quote from Th Psalm 37 in the context of Psalm 37. And the blessing is, is that the meek will inherit the earth, but the meek are parallel to those who hope in the Lord. Meekness in Psalm 37 is categorically godliness. It's those who, who trust in the Lord, do good, 
delight themselves in the Lord, commit their way to the Lord, hope in the Lord, seek righteousness, wait patiently for the Lord, and have a kind of emotional stillness. They're willing to wait on the Lord. They're not in a rush. They don't have to make it happen themselves. Because you know what happens when you want to make it happen yourself? These things. You want to do evil and you're envious of people who have the, quote, guts to do it. Or you fret at evil. Do you notice that the word fret is in there twice? Like being anxious about. The inability to rest in placidness. Right? Wickedly scheming, releasing anger and wrath, plotting and the gnashing of teeth. You'll see that three of those are specifically related to outbursts of anger and intemperateness. There are some of us that believe that there's a virtue in our anger if we think that our anger is sufficiently righteous. That is not the case. The exposition of anger is only righteous when it is specifically necessary for the good of the thing you're working on that has nothing to do with your personal self-interest. Okay, we'll look at that when we get to chapter 13 in Zechariah, where he pulls out some people's hair because he's, he's like, they're, they're doing something that's so bad for the people of Israel that's destroying their culture and their capacity to experience God's rejuvenation. He doesn't do it about himself. You'll see this in this passage. When people won't help him, he doesn't attack them. Right? And so if you're here, and one of the things that is going on in your life is you know that just being angry for fun is wrong, or being angry just to hurt people is wrong, but you still have intemperate outbursts of anger, either yelling or yelling and saying things you should not say, or being really snide and cutting, or, 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 and you think that it's justified because, like, those people have hurt you, or you're kind of right, or if you don't do this, they're going to keep doing that. They're going to keep behaving that way. Right? Listen, especially that last one. If you don't do this, they're going to keep behaving that way. That is literally the opposite of waiting on the Lord. Literally the opposite. And it is categorically among the behaviors of the wicked. And therefore categorically not an action of faith. Not what faith is for. Faith is for stopping, waiting, and trying to figure out what the most constructive thing to do you can possibly do in the maximum amount of gentleness. Right? When Paul is writing the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he is so angry at how they're behaving. Right? And he says, I appeal to you. He doesn't say, I'm going to kill you. He says, I appeal to you in the meekness and gentleness of the Lord to stop these things. You say that I'm meek in my letters, but bold in person. But my goal is to write you this letter so that I don't have to be bold when I come to see you in person. And probably the reason why he was kind in his letters and bold in person is because you can't be bold in writing without looking like a jerk. You always get what they call keyboard courage, right? Where like, you know, you think you're being nice, but you're really not. You just can't do that in writing. It's why you don't send corrective emails to people, right? Only in person can you push a little bit, whereas like, you see the person in front of you so you can properly empathize with them and they're a real person to you because you're literally talking to them right in front of you and you can see how they're reacting to what you're saying and you can see how much you have to push based on how they're responding. It's the only way to really push is to do it in person, right? And so Paul wasn't hard through his letters, relatively speaking, to when he was there. Okay. So what's important to recognize is that meekness is gentle, calm, 
the gentle calm of humble faith, and meekness is a family of virtues that includes the fear of the Lord, faith, humility, gentleness, deference, temperance, forbearance, prudence, hopefulness, etc. There's some people who are kind of like, because the continental philosophers of the last century said, you know, Christianity has all the feminine virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Jesus was the pansy little savior, right? And so he thought everybody should have faith and believe no matter what was happening, and we should all love each other, and we should all have hope in things. But the Romans and the Greeks had the masculine, virile virtues of temperance and prudence and courage and so on. Well, no. Jesus just didn't like our excuses to call completely immoral and unvirtuous things courage and forbearance and whatever. They're all built into the family virtues of meekness. Meekness is the willingness to wait, but stand strong. That is forbearance. It is not to lash out in anger, but to do the right thing in the right moment for the good of others and the right thing to do in carrying yourself. That's called temperance. All of the virtues are there. They are just covered over with the amount of faith and humility necessary to do them well, i.e. meekness. As Christians, we're meant to understand that family of strong virtues under the banner of meekness, which moderates and tempers them so that we don't do them in unnecessarily violent ways. So that we can be strong without being violent in all the wrong senses. Because we are creatures very prone to all kinds of violence. Now, you might be thinking, Nick, what on earth does this have to do with Nehemiah? Like what we heard was a reading about a bunch of people who were building stuff. Right? Well, there's a couple. There's a couple cheeky ways. One is, they're inheriting the earth. Do you see it? A bunch of people who aren't self-important, who accept the lowliness of their position, who have been disenfranchised by the world that they're a part of, who believe in something, that there's something worth doing. They believe they can only do it together because nobody's great enough to do it by themselves, right? They stand up for something they believe in. They gather together and they do something, and in doing so, they inherit the earth. They inherit Jerusalem, the holy city, and they rebuild it into something of what its, its former greatness and prepare it for its future greatness. It's not done by some great man. It's not done by some great king. It's done by a bunch of people with trowels and later spears. Right? Also, a number of commentators point out that in chapter 3, when Nehemiah catalogs all of the people who works, work, there's no mention of himself. Later in the book, we know that he did a lot of work. And he was commanding everything and doing all kinds of stuff. But he doesn't mention that. What he mentions in the first section about building— is that these people built, right? Did you recognize any of the names? You, sh you wouldn't, right? These are all pretty ordinary people. Even the, even the uh, rulers of the half sections of Jerusalem, like, their names still aren't recorded anywhere else in history. They lived and they died, and they did or they didn't do something, you know? But for Nehemiah, all of their names— all of them deserve recording. They're all the same. They all weren't too proud to work, and they were willing to make the sacrifices to do what was best. They were meek. He was meek. 
And in the presence of those virtues, a lot can get done, even if you're poor and dispossessed and disenfranchised and hurt and have lost your family name and everything. Right? So let's look at four social virtues that meekness promotes. If it's, if it's present in us, it's going to promote these goods. And through these goods, God does really great things. And they all need to be present. If you just have one of these, or two of them, you don't get renewal. Because it will miscarry in the ways that are lacking. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's look at the first one. The first one is that meekness motivates sacrificial service. Meekness motiv motivates sacrificial service. You can see this in the, um, just the first few verses. So in verse 218, Nehemiah says, you guys, so he's giving a speech. He says, I told them of the hand of God that was with me for good, and also the word that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work, right? So after he gave them the speech about what they should all do together, the people say, let's rise up and build, right? Now the question is this, who's going to do it first? Because you can have a really great idea for a really big project, and everybody can say that they want to do it, but until that first down payment gets paid, until the first donation comes in, until the first person shows up with their shovel, you don't have a project, right? And it says that this guy, Eliashib, who is the high priest and the other priests, these are not people used to manual labor, mind you, all right? These are people who have, like, non-discolored fingernails. Do you understand? Except for, like, sheep's blood. You know, I, I guess I shouldn't push that too far, right? And they, they decide, like, we're going we're gonna to start. We're going to be first. And so they all rise up, and they start to get ready to build. And meanwhile, he goes through a bunch of others, and he gets to verse 5, and he talks about the people from Tekoa, and it says, he says that the people of Tekoa came and worked, and then the, the version that was read, you guys said, but the nobles wouldn't stoop to work under the direction of their supervisors. The direction of their supervisors. The English Standard Version translates it, won't, wouldn't stoop to serve their lord. Now, in some sense, lord there is ambiguous between lo the lord Nehemiah, who has the authority to run this thing, that is, they wouldn't work with him, or it could mean um, the supervisors, and sometimes they translate the supervisors because the word is plural. The word lord is actually lords plural, right? Which obviously should mean supervisors, except for this fact. That word shows up plural in that form about six times in um, the Old Testament. Every time it refers to a singular person. Every single time. Now, that doesn't mean that this time it doesn't. I mean, it's plural. It could refer to the supervisors. But the reason why the ESV translates it Lord singular is because it believes that, one, that's the correct translation, but it also believes that that's really who the nobles wouldn't serve. That when the priests rose up to serve, they did it because they were serving God. They knew that this was the right thing to do. They knew that this is what, this is what faith required. And the, the leaders of Tekoa just didn't. But it didn't stop the people from coming. And they came from everywhere. And they served and they did stuff. And they did it, they did it so much. And they worked so hard that in only 52 days, the wall of the entire city was rebuilt. And so when people actually are meek, when they don't, when they're not so focused on themselves— their position, where their status is, where they stand. It's easy to care about something else and to realize, because why won't we serve, right? We won't serve because it's a transfer of wealth away from us. Service is always a transfer of wealth away from us. Now, sometimes in that service, different kinds of wealth come back to us, right? And part of growing as a person, being mature, is realizing that many times when we serve, even more value comes back to us in different ways. Friendship and love and Increase solidarity and all kinds of other things, but 
the reason people don't serve is in a certain kind of selfish immaturity, we don't want to make the, the value transfer. We don't want to take our time, our money, our capacity for work, our energy, our privacy, our leisure, and transfer that wealth to some other person or group. We just want to do it. Why would we do that? Why would we get rid of some of our wealth? But when somebody is meek and they realize that's really not the goal, that's not what faith is for, that's not why we're here, that transfer of value doesn't matter so much. Because what they want more than anything is to be the kind of person who serves. And when you want more than anything to be the kind of person who serves, then by definition, nothing else can keep you from it. If anything can keep you from serving, then by definition, you don't want to be that person more than anything else. You want to be that person more than anything else except that thing. And real meekness makes us the kind of person who wants to be that kind of servant more than anything else. The second thing is that meekness creates the momentum of solidarity. Right? There's something about meekness when, when the people leading don't care who gets the credit. When the, when the person who's technically in charge isn't getting rich off of it. Right? When that person isn't getting other people to work for them so that they're not working. Right? Um, one, for example, um, one of the not great leaders of countries in the 20th century was, was uh, Benito Mussolini. Okay? Mussolini was a fascist dictator. Not a nice guy, okay? So why did Italy fall in love with him? My grandfather, for example, was serving in the Italian military, and in the first few years of, of Mussolini rising to power, he thought he was going to be a great man and really help Italy, right? Even though my family had a long history of sep being a separat separatist in Italy. The reason he thought—one of the reasons he thought that was every year during the grain harvest, Mussolini would go out to the countryside and get a sickle and stand with the peasants and roll up his sleeves and sweat—get sweat drenched and cut— Wheat with everybody else, and there were pictures in the newspapers of him standing with everybody else out in the fields cutting the grain, right? I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who would get people to come like to like his ranch, and he would like go out in the barn talking with diplomats, and he'd like throw hay up up in the hay mount, you know? And apparently one of the—he went out there one time, and there was no hay. All the hay was up in the hay mount. And he, he said, he's, and he said, well, Zayes, why is all the hay up in the hay mount? Don't we have any more hay? He says, well— you threw all the hay up into the hay mount when the French diplomats were here, so now with the German ones, you're supposed to throw it back down. <laughs> but there, there was a certain kind of like, I'll do it with you sort of virility to him. And like, people really liked that about him. People really liked that. People follow people who they think, you're in this with me, and if you're in this with me, I'll do it with you. Right? All the times I've been successful in rallying people my whole life, I've always said, I'm not going to get anything out of this. This is really important. Let's all do it together. It's going to cost us all something, but it's all going to cost us the same. It's going to cost us time and effort and service. Let's all do it together. Right? When you know somebody's going to make their name off of it or make their fortune off of it on, the, on your back in service, you don't want to follow them. Right? And everybody knew the way, the way Nehemiah acted from the day he got there to the day he left. He didn't take money. He didn't receive taxes that he was due as governor. He paid for a lot of things with his own money, and he was out there working with everybody else. And what happened was that led other people to do it as well, right? So, for example, there's a, one of the half-rulers of the city of Jerusalem was out there working himself and his daughters. Okay, now listen, not only do daughters not normally do this kind of work in the ancient world, 
But these were the daughters of a nobleman. They especially would not do this in the ancient world. And listen, I don't know if you've thought this through, but this is actually pretty dangerous work. Because they're, they're building with multi-hundred pound stones. And after you get it about this high, you're in the business of lifting them with relatively primitive technology. And of course, they don't have the best equipment. These people are all poor. So they're using like wooden poles and ropes, and they're like sliding these things up. Like it, you can get crushed and die, okay? And this ruler has his daughters out there working, right? And if you know anything about teenage daughters, they're pissed enough that if they don't want to be there, they're not going, right? And so these girls wanted to be there. I'm just kidding. That You can't tell that from the text. Okay, so a couple things about solidarity. <clears throat> the first is shared interests should be virtuous, okay? I'm going to make a point that is going to— frustrate some of you right now. I think it's important, okay? There are lots of kinds of solidarity. Lots of ways you can count yourself in interest with other people, okay? In the United States right now, we are probably practicing the worst form of solidarity, especially in our political process. Sometimes people call it identity politics. That is, that you are in solidarity with the people of your race. You're in solidarity with the people of your gender. You're in solidarity with the people of your— um, your sexual preference, you're in solidarity with people who are just like you for some reason, okay? Now, I'm not saying that can't be a solidarity, okay? Because if, if you're in that group of people, and that group of people is specifically the recipient of some kind of harm, right, then it might make sense to gather against that harm relative to that group of people, okay? So I'm not saying it's completely wrong or anything. What I'm saying is this, is I think it's probably the lowest kind of solidarity, and we want to get above that as quick as we can. One of the ways to do it is to look at the kind of oppression that particular group is receiving and focusing your solidarity on that oppression type rather than the people group. For example, Martin Luther King did this in about 1967. So for, through 64 and the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and then starting to get that into the legal system, he focused a lot on African Americans and whether African Americans could vote, you know, whether they could go into segregated lunch counters, those kinds of things. But after about 1966 and into 67, he started recognizing that the biggest problem in the African-American community was poverty. But the minute he, re he realized that, he started realizing that that was actually the biggest problem for like all kinds of people. And so more and more, he would focus on black poverty, but he'd say, in every interview, in every interview, he'd say, but listen, this is the biggest po problem in our whole country. In fact, this is the biggest problem in the whole world. And I don't even feel like I can just represent this one group because I feel like the issue is this bigger issue. And so he was moving as quickly as he could in his struggle from a tie-in racially to a tie-in in solidarity in terms of a particular kind of suffering. Does that make sense? And as we think about solidarity, we can only be drawn together as a diverse people into one community of love if our solidarities are actually higher than those things, and we're all listening to each other in relationship to our needs. So here, the solidarity was to rebuild the people of God, and to rebuild the city that was the focal point of it by rebuilding its wall. And all these different kinds of people could get on board with that. And then once they got to that level, that became the basis by which they handled other things. So the, the issue that we talked about last week or the week before related to poverty and injustice— Part of the reason why everybody dealt with that was because they'd all already been brought together around something else. Because they'd already been brought together around a spiritual virtue of doing what God said. Then when something threatened that, there was a shared solidarity. They didn't want to ruin that. 
And it led to all kinds of different means by which to deal with the lesser or the auxiliary injustice. Does that make sense? And so be careful with your solidarities. There are many that are legitimate, but that we still want to move beyond to the next higher spiritual level that creates more solidarity with more people as soon as we can. Because our goal is a unified people of love that are profoundly different from each other. And if we stay in our solidarities with people who are just like us, we can't ever do that. Does that make sense? Okay. The second is solidarity never includes everyone. I know the the goal is to include everyone, but it never does. Right? When the people of Israel came back from um, Persia, something like 42,000 people returned. And more had returned since then. Not in the multiple—not in the high tens of thousands, but more people. Nothing like that percentage, that number of people worked on this wall. A few thousand people. He could list a number of families. And that's it, man. A bunch of families and three towns sent people. Right? And that's it. And those people, those people and their kids— built the wall of Jerusalem. Maybe 3% of the total population within 10 miles of the city. Probably less than that. I remember um, in, at the time of the American Revolution in the 1700s, do you know how, what percentage of Americans very, very much wanted to rebel against Britain? It's 3%. of Americans really, really wanted to rebel against Britain. A lot of people could take it or leave it. A lot of people wanted to be free, but they didn't want to fight. 3%. Led to a revolution, led to a new nation, right? Um, there's There's a lot of ways in which things function like that. Very small percentages of people who believe very strongly in things and are willing to sacrifice anything to accomplish them can accomplish them. Now, that doesn't mean that their goals are good. You can look at situations in history in which very small percentages of people who wanted to do things that were very terrible, were 100% committed to them and were successful and destroyed entire societies and created death camps and graves in which millions of people were buried. And you can also find groups of people, very small groups of people, who believe something very strongly and they, and they pushed for it with moral argumentation and they were incredibly successful in transforming a society or leading to some great good. Right? You need to realize that if you're going to serve something, you cannot be dissuaded by how many people are getting involved. You can't. If you believe it's right, if you believe you're called to do it, it doesn't matter how many people are willing to do it with you. Right? Down to the smallest group of like, maybe your marriage stinks and you don't know that your spouse is going to make it better with you. Okay? Not everybody's involved in solidarity, guys. (laughs) You might be on board with that for a while before your spouse gets on board with it. It's fine. You might be on board with having a good relationship with your kid or your parent, and they might not be in solidarity with you. And that's fine. If it's the right thing to do, it does not matter how many people do it with you. You do it. Because as you do it, more people will gather. More people come. You'll see this in Nehemiah. After they build the wall and after they make some progress— And then they have to actually find people willing to live in the city because the city's empty. Now that the wall is built and now that there's security and now some progress has been made, now people that wouldn't have gotten involved in the building of the wall will now choose to come and live in the city, which is still a big sacrifice. But it's not as terrifying. 
and they, their courage has grown, and their cross has been lightened. And so the thing progresses. Not everybody's involved. Also, um, solidarity really can exist between very different people. If you look at this list of people, it's all kinds of different people, from all kinds of different places, from all kinds of different occupations. There's rulers, there's poor people, there's peasants, there's servants. We find out in chapter 5, there's people that can't even pay their bills. There's other people that are rulers. There's men, there's women. There's people who are goldsmiths for a living. Goldsmiths are also people who usually do not do manual labor. And perfumers. Okay, those are the last people. Like, you can tell that those guys probably didn't get to swing hammers. You know what I mean? The masons are like, how about you? You do that over here and we'll, we'll do this, right? But they were there and they worked and they did their thing. Does that make sense? And they helped each other. It, it was an extremely diverse group of people, but, but they all shared a particular belief. And that's why what you're calling people to solidarity around is critical. Because in some ways it determines how God will call them in and how things will progress and whether or not your cause is just enough to even call people who were formerly enemies of it in. Does that make sense? And then lastly, don't assume the motives or the, or the future. When you're in solidarity with people, when people are willing to work with you on stuff, don't assume they're going to be with you forever and don't assume you know their motives. Just be glad for them and then don't throw a hissy fit when they leave. I remember when I first got into pastoring, Doug Pennington was my pastoral mentor. He was, a, he was a senior pastor over me. And he said, Nick, one of the things you're going to find in ministry is that people are going to leave you. Um, people that you thought would be happy with what you're doing and wanting to follow you and where you're leading spiritually. And the thing is that they won't, lead you when you th they won't leave you when you think they're going to. So there'll be some like big difficult—you'll have like a big building campaign and they'll give generously to it. Or you'll have some like big dust up in the church and they'll be on your side. And then there'll be like some argument over a vacuum cleaner and they'll leave and go to another country. He's like, it's, it's so weird. He's like, I've been in this for 25 years. He's like, it's just, just always realize that as you're not as important as you think you are. People are not as loyal to you as you want them to be. Like, that's just how life is. And listen, when they're here, you lead, you love, you pastor, you help. And when they go, you bless them. And that's just all there is to it. Because people are not going to be with you forever, right? Now listen, why am I telling you that? Because I don't want you. No, it's not because I don't want you to leave me. <laughs> it's because— that's how life is. It's not just ministry. And anytime you try to lead anything, anytime you try to do anything, people are not going to revere you as much as you wish. They're not going to follow you as hard as you want. They're going to leave at times where you didn't expect them to leave. Things like that are going to happen. So, for example, Eliashib, the high priest, the first one to rise up and build with the priests, by the time we get to the end of the story, he's the big betrayer. It's terrible. We'll get to it in chapter 13. He's the worst person. The elders of Tekoa that wouldn't submit under Nehemiah's rule or wouldn't submit to the Lord by building, you'll notice that you're like, well, he did say negative things about them. I mean, he said that they wouldn't stoop to—, to yeah, but you know what? That's all he does. He could have told them, listen, if people come and attack you, we're not coming to help you unless you come and build this. Or we're not going to send you the food things. Or I'm not going to—or I'm going to report you to the king. Or like Nehemiah could have decided to stick it to those elders. All their people are coming. What's wrong with them? Right? But Nehemiah was what? He was meek. And so he said, do what you're going to do. He told us one line of the truth, and he left it there. And then he was mostly thankful for what the other people of Tekoa did. That's what you do. Because you don't know why people are there. You don't know when they're going to leave. And you have to be 
full of character and godly about what you're going to do. Does that make sense? I want to hit these last things before we end real fast. Meekness creates a sense of, res- of shared responsibility or virtuous responsibility. What you'll notice is, is that um, people who, who wouldn't have normally got involved got personally involved, like these daughters. Also, as you read through, you'll notice that most of the people who worked, worked near something that mattered to them. So the priests worked near the Sheep's Gate, which is where all the sacrifices came in that was right next to the temple. Most of these people worked right in front of their own houses. The leader, the guard of the East Gate, made repairs next to these guys. Well, where is these guys? Well, they're right next to the East Gate. This guy worked on the East Gate. He's the guard of the East Gate. As you work through the passage, what you find is, is that everybody works on what's closest to them. So the men of Jericho worked up here. Well, where's Jericho? It's up here. The men of Tekoa worked here. Where's Tekoa? Right there. The men of Zenoah worked right here. They did this whole section, 400 yards. Where do they live? Right there, five miles that way. Everybody worked at the part of the wall closest to them. And in order to create social solidarity and for things to move up, what's necessary is not for you to be like, well, I'm in solidarity with everybody else, so we're all going to win together as a mob. No, that's not how it works. You come in solidarity with each other to achieve something, and then you take responsibility for the peace closest to you. You do your thing. You do the thing you're responsible to do. That's part—everything you do is part of a larger social fabric, and you need to do your part really well. And if God blesses you, there will be some superfluousness in your life. That is some extra asset, right? And then you can invest that to the next group a little farther away from you that you have some responsibility for. And as you take those things seriously— It produces a broader life as you share in the solidarity of the whole, and as you take responsibility within your personal sphere in sacrificial service, renewal begins to happen in your personal life, in the church's life, and ultimately in the city, right? And then lastly—I'm sorry, I gotta go faster through this—is that only ferocious meekness can bring renewal. So you can see this in Nehemiah that like there's a number of places where he wants to lash out and kill people. And he just says, God, please remember me. So he says. So he does all this work. He works so hard, and people seem to not thank him at all for it. And he just writes in his memoir, God, I did these things. Just please, you remember them. Right? And then when people attack him, and he thinks that they're going to kill him, and he could write back to the emperor and tell him that, and maybe the emperor would send people to kill them. He doesn't. He says, Lord, please remember what they did, and then you bring their curses down on them. You do it, not me. I'm not going to touch them. I'm not going to lay a finger on them. Right? And yet, he—so he won't defend himself. But when it comes to defending the city and the wall, he was willing to work with a rock in one hand and a sword in the other. And when it came to saving the Jewish people's culture, he was willing to pull the hair out of some people's heads. But it was never about him. Right? You can see this in—you ought to be able to see this increasingly in yourself. Right? In what way is your faith in Jesus— ordering your heart and your character and your mind and your faith so that there's a certain kind of ferocious meekness rising in you. That you have a ferocity for the pursuit of God. A ferocity for the pursuit of righteousness, for what's good. To love and help people. To to live in that family of virtues that count as meekness. You're ferocious about that. And you'll never back down about it. And yet, you love to count others better than yourself. You're willing to wait on the wrath of God. You don't lash out in anger when things don't go your way. Then all the virile virtues of strength, they're all still under the banner of meekness. Right? Which is, 
one of the reasons why we're always constantly having to go back to Jesus, right? The more closely you read about the Savior, the more you will see in him a ferocity for the will of God. Even though he is himself God, in his work as the Messiah, he separates those two out functionally as though the will of God was another thing he was fighting for and it wasn't about him. So that he could be crushed himself under the will of God so that the will of God would stand. And in anything that had to do with the will of God, he was ferocious for. And then in anything that had to do with himself, he was incredibly meek so that he could turn to Peter who wanted to cut off ears and heads in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, he's Peter. Don't you realize that in one word, I could have 10,000 angels slitting the throats of these men. Don't you understand? Don't you understand that in one word he could have come down off the cross? In one word he could have never come in the first place. And at any moment, in anything he did, any person he spoke kindly to, he could have told off. And even when he told people off, he always was telling them off so they would escape what they were headed towards. And his telling off is pretty rare. He clears the temple a couple times, and he rips into the Pharisees a couple times. That's about it. Without the meekness of Jesus, there is no building of the walls of salvation. There is no garden for you to live in forever. There is no hope for your future. There is no example of what our meeknesses should look like. But if you want to worship the Savior as he really is, as he really is, then what faith is for, once he gives it to you for your salvation, is so that you would pursue him to be like him. And that you would not neglect, even if your whole nation and world would neglect it, the family of true virtues called meekness. It must be one of the great pursuits of your life. And if it is, then go home this afternoon and reread Psalm 37. Read it like the whole psalm is a beatitude to you. Speaking of the blessings and the peace and the joy and the hope that God freely gives to the one who waits on him and who looks to him and who follows him and who trusts him in the meekness of faith. Let's pray. Fathers, we get ready to engage in one of the rituals of meekness, submitting to baptism, we pray that you would help us to enjoy and rejoice in the peace you bring to the human heart and soul by granting faith and leading us to become your disciples. We pray that as we celebrate this together, you'd be pleased and that we'd be able to enjoy it together in Jesus' name. Amen.